If you would, take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation three fourteen through 22. It's our text this morning. This uh, is the seventh of the seven letters to the seven churches. So this uh, concludes our study through uh, the seven churches. We'll continue on through the rest of the book of Revelation. We'll pick up the pace a little bit. If you'll notice, if you're following along your sermon card, this is message number 9 of 27. That means we're a third of the way through the sermon series, and yet we've only finished chapter 3. There are 22 chapters in Revelation, so from this point forward, we'll average a chapter a week, a little more than that. Um, So next week, we'll look at chapter 4 as a whole. But this morning, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is our text, and before we read it, I'll just say uh, two notes, <clears throat> uh, just prefatory notes. One of them is that uh, John signaled me halfway through our singing that I had my microphone on. I, I think that the way this works is that if the singers are on, then you can't hear me. And if you can, I apologize. Because um, I, I, there's a reason why I'm not up here singing. Um, the second thing I'll say is a number of weeks back, I started for the sake of uh, ease in taking notes of putting the sermon points uh, up on the uh, projectors here, and, and, and people have said that's helpful, so we're continuing to do that. I'm tempted, though, every week as I make a point to turn and make sure that what I've written on there is right. So if ever it doesn't make sense, just listen to what I say, not what I've written. Um, so with those prefatory notes, let's turn to the last letter to the seven churches, the letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Would you stand one more time so that we may honor together the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Hear the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we ask one more time now as we have looked at these letters to the churches and a number of them have given us words of encouragement, deep encouragement. A number of them have given us deep conviction. You've wounded and you've healed. Sometime in the very same letter. Lord, here we are again, turning to these letters, knowing that This letter, though, yes, written to the church in Laodicea in the first century, you end it telling us if we have ears, we should hear this letter. We need to hear what the Spirit says, for it may very well be a perfect diagnosis of us, offering us both a cure and a promise if our faith is in Christ and we persevere in faith. So, Father... Help us this morning one more time. Open our hearts one more time to expose ourselves to what your Spirit has said to the churches. And Lord, may my words not be a demonstration of the wisdom of man, 
but of the power of the Spirit of God, so that our faith might not rest in man, but on you, our God, the very one who one day will raise from the dead all those whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may have heard this attributed to Marie Antoinette, which I found out this week apparently is incorrect. But we've probably all heard of the words the princess uttered when she got news that the peasants had no bread. And she said, well, then let them eat cake. The quote is often referenced as an illustration of someone who has lived such a lush and pleasant lifestyle that they've really just lost touch with reality. As the princess just, just had no category that if they don't have bread, obviously they don't have cake, they don't have food. She had lost category with that. It's a, it's a good, good example of what can happen when you're so removed from the hardships of life that you lose touch with reality. Perhaps this has been matched in our own day, though, on a couple of occasions. Former NBA basketball player Latrell uh, Sprewell one time turned down a three-year, $21 million contract. And when the media was surprised by this, they pressed him on it. How could you turn that down? Three years, $21 million. And his answer was, hey, I've got a family to feed. Similarly, Patrick Ewing, uh, when, when the NBA Players Association and the owners were, were debating on issues going through strikes, Patrick Ewing wanted to represent the NBA players' hardships. And so he said, sure, NBA players make a lot of money, but we spend a lot too. If your hardship is that you spend a lot of money, you've probably lost touch with reality. But as easy as these examples are to laugh at, it may be that we this morning are in a very similar place. Now, by that, I don't mean that, that we in this room have lost touch with the fact that people are poor, perhaps without any food at all, starving to death, or that we've lost touch with the reality that $21 million is a whole, whole lot of money, or that wanting to spend a lot of money really isn't a hardship in life. I don't mean that we've lost touch in the exact same ways, but it may be that we've equally lost touch with reality. You see, maybe we've become so accustomed to our lives and our settings and our abilities that we've altogether lost touch with the fact that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. Maybe we've gotten so used to our surroundings and our lush and pleasant lifestyles that we've lost track that we're in war, at war with what Paul says are cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or maybe we've become so accustomed to our abilities that we've lost touch with the reality that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. You see, isn't each of these realities just as real that's the fact that 21 million is a lot of money, so that we're battling against cosmic forces in the heavenly places. All of these realities are equally as true and sure and real as the fact that if people don't have bread, they probably don't have cake either. And just as Marie Antoinette or whomever quoted that, should be embarrassed to hear that quote, or Latrell Sprewell or Patrick Ewing, so shouldn't we be embarrassed? at the fact that we feel so privileged in life that when trials come along, we're surprised by them? Shouldn't we be a bit embarrassed by the fact that though we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ, we often rush out into our day without pausing for one second to pray and ask for strength from Him? You see, we too can become so accustomed to our settings that we can become dull to the reality, the real world and certainties and truths around us. But if that's the case this morning, if you and I have become that dull to the spiritual realities around us, then there is good news for us. The good news is that we're not the first who have become dull of hearing, who have lost touch with reality. 
When Jesus writes this letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, I think he's writing to a people who have become so dull in their setting that they've lost touch with reality. These were people who professed the name of Jesus Christ, but it is almost certain that they were not pursuing the Great Commission. People who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord, but I think we can say with almost certainty that they weren't pursuing love for Christ and their neighbor. People who profess the name of Jesus Christ, and yet I think we can say with almost certainty their goal in life wasn't to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. They were a people who had become utterly useless for the cause of Christ. And I know that's a heavy diagnosis, utterly useless. But I think it's accurate. I think it's accurate because I think that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus begins this letter as he does the other, just describing who he is, oftentimes taking images from chapter 1, this vision from Revelation 1. Well, he does it here as well. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the one who speaks and what he speaks is true and what he speaks is, is right and can be trusted and what he speaks carries authority. Obviously, when he introduces himself as the faithful and true witness, that's his way of saying my words are true and, and that they can be trusted. When he introduces himself as the amen, I think he's merely making the same point. What he's saying is true. You see, amen is a word that, that is so be it or a word that means this is truly so, so Jesus, we often know, we'll, we'll start a verse, we'll start a, a line from him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, as he says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you. Well, that word truly, truly is amen, amen. So I think these are parallels when he says, I'm the amen, the faithful and true witnesses. I'm the true one, the one who's witness, whose words are faithful and true. And when he says the beginning of God's creation, I think that's his way of saying, I'm the head the supreme one, and the first one of new creation. That's to say Jesus is the first one who's ever received a glorified body, the first one who's been raised from the dead and glorified. The reason I think that's a reference to new creation is because if you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, we're told there that Jesus is the faithful witness. And it's immediately followed with the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. That is the first who's been raised, the preeminent one. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the true one, the one whose witness is faithful and true, and the one who carries authority over all of God's people, over all the new creation. I am the preeminent one. All that then together screams, what I'm about to tell you is true, it can be trusted, and it's authoritative. Why go to that length to make that point? Because he's about to expose them. Here's what he says. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, growing up, I always heard that this reference to cold or hot was a reference to one's spiritual vitality. That's to say to be hot would be you're, you're, you're white hot in your pursuit of love for Jesus, right? You're a hot Christian, someone that's, that's after God hotly, if you will. You have a high temperature of spiritual vitality, very much alive. Cold, well, then be the opposite. You're basically dead in your pursuit of Christ. There's, there's uh, perhaps even antagonism. You may hate the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be cold. So what I heard growing up is that Jesus is saying... I wish that you either white hot in your pursuit of me or that you just hated me. Either one of those would be preferable to where you are. You're just lukewarm. Kind of a half-hearted, committed Christian. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But I think what Jesus is saying here is worse. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think he is capitalizing on a reality that they would have known in their world. You see, Laodicea was a rich city. I'll describe some of the riches here in a second. But for all their riches, the one thing they didn't have was a good water supply. A nearby city was known for hot springs. 
In fact, apparently you can go there to this day and still see these hot springs. And so these hot springs, then this heated water can be used for a number of things, medicinal purposes, soothing sore muscles, bathing, whatever, just numerous causes you can use hot water for. And then another nearby city was known for cold springs. Cold water is refreshing for drinking. And Laodicea, those surrounded nearby, a few miles by each of these cities, they themselves, for all their riches, had no good water supply. Now the evidence shows they, they didn't even try to pipe in water from either of the cities. It looked like it came from another place. But, but nonetheless, what they tried to do with the resources is, is to take these uh, pipes and pipe in water. They, they, would, they would put heavy chemicals in the pipe so in hopes that as this water traveled to them, it, it wouldn't be stagnant and, and nasty by the time it got there. But it never worked. Laodicea never had a good water supply. So what would happen is, when the water finally got to them through this piping system, it would be lukewarm and tepid, and it would make you nauseous. So that if you drank the water in Laodicea for all their riches, it would make you want to spit it right out of your mouth, often make you nauseous and want to vomit. I think what Jesus is saying here is he's appealing to something they would have known very well. He's saying, you're not hot, you're, you're not useful like the water that one would find in Hierapolis, nor are you cold, you're not useful like the water you might find in Colossae. Rather, you're like your own water. You're useless. Fit to make one nauseous, and I am ready to spit you out of my mouth. Those are harsh and hard words. So I don't think here Jesus is saying you're lukewarm in your spiritual vitality. I think He's saying much worse. I think he's saying to them, you've become like your own water, useless. Now, when you hear those hard words, obviously it should cause us to sit up a little bit and say, we don't want to be there. And if we are there, what do we do? Is there any hope for us? And then, and then if we can turn from being there, what do we do then? So this morning, I just want to try to answer those questions. Here's what I want to give you. Two warnings. Warnings that I think we need to hear so that we can keep from going down this route. Because the reality is, if we compare our own setting to the setting of the seven churches, it's probably Laodicea that most parallels us. If you were to pick out one church and say, our setting is most conducive for moving us in their direction, it would be this letter, Laodicea. This is the one that the church in the 21st century in North America, I think, is most prone to moving toward because our settings are, are, are quite similar. So I want to give you two warnings. Then I want to give you a word of hopeful encouragement. Because indeed, if these warnings are heard, you may say, well, this is where I am. I think I'm right there. I think I've become like them. Is there any hope for me? Yes, there is. A word of hopeful encouragement. And then I want to end just by laying out for us what should be our goal, our focus. What do we do now? If we've heard the warnings, we've, we've turned uh, from this place away from it, uh, from this place of being useless to, to, to another goal, then what should be my focus now? What should be my goal? I want to answer these questions. So first, let me begin with a warning. The warning is this. The presence of riches or other blessings can be a great hurdle to obedient Christian living. The presence of riches or other blessings can be a great hurdle to obedient Christian living. Now I said to you, I, I don't think that that hot and cold is a reference to one's spiritual vitality being white hot for the Lord or cold and antagonistic against Him, but rather just lukewarm, kind of uh, apathetic, if you will. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But ironically, I do think one of the key problems for the Laodiceans was that they were apathetic. They just didn't care. There was no pursuit of Christ. Now, the reason I say that is because, verse 19, when Jesus is going to give them the corrective, after saying, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, he says, so be zealous and repent. That is, part of what you need to do to repent is have some zeal. Have some passion, have some earnestness. You need, you need to start caring. So, so I think one of the problems was that they were apathetic, that they just had this no-care attitude about pursuing Christ or obedience to Him. But what they also had was that they were blind to their apathy. 
So, so if you wanted to describe these people, and I say that because Jesus actually says to them in verse 17, you're blind. So, so they were blind. They, they, they lost the fact, they were blinded to the fact that, that they were just apathetic to the things of the Lord. It just didn't matter to them. Now the question would be, how in the world did they get there? If, if, if they were apathetic and didn't care about Christ or pursuing obedience to Him, and they were even blinded to their bad place, how did they get there? Well, one of the ways it seems they got there was through the riches and the blessings and the prosperity that surrounded them. Look at what Jesus says after saying in verse 16, You're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I want to spit you out of my mouth. He says in verse 17, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were blinded because they thought they were well off. They were blinded to their spiritual need because they thought they had everything they needed. You see, Laodicea was a wealthy, wealthy city, and it seemed like these believers' lives in some way paralleled their city. One of the ways we know of Laodicea's wealth is in A.D. 60, there was a massive earthquake that, that went through this area. That, that Many of the towns, the cities were just leveled. And what happened in that day, this will sound familiar, what happened in that day when a natural disaster like an earthquake came through in the Roman Empire was everybody appealed for federal help, right? So this, this was like this. I don't know if the emperor would come and, and walk along and there would be crews there reporting it, but this is what helped. Happen. So the surrounding towns then, they were all saying, Rome, help us. And sure enough, Rome did. Rome was dealing out the dollars, um, and the people were being, their towns being built up. And when they built them up, they built all kinds of, uh, erected a statue to the emperor of Rome because he helped rebuild the city. You know what Laodicea said? Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need it. We don't need Roman assistance. We have all we need. And they built their city up even more beautifully from their own funds. They were wealthy. They were the center of three major trade routes. So what happened is as people came through on these trade routes, they would spend all kinds of money in the city, and the city prospered. Not only that, they were a place where there was currency exchange. So they would come in, exchange their currency, lay out a sea, it would benefit a bit off of this. And the city was just had a means for getting richer and richer and richer. Not only that... But they had this, this resource of black wool. Apparently the black wool, uh, so I read it, it wasn't the kind of thing that was the most comfortable perhaps, but it was very durable. Uh, one commentator said maybe you'll compare it to something like our denim. You know, denim, we don't buy jeans because we say there's just nothing more comfortable I can imagine than denim against my skin. We buy it because it's durable. Well, in this world, black wool, it seems, served the same purpose. And Laodicea was a hub for this black wool. And besides that, they had a medical school where the main thing they worked in was this eye salve. You see, in the ancient world, you would, you would often be outside. There would be windstorms. You'd get all kinds of debris in your eyes. And this salve, apparently, you could put over your eye, and it would pull out the debris. They had all kinds of means for riches. They were rich, and they had prospered, and they had no need of anything as a city. Well, it seems that the church had been lulled into thinking the same thing of themselves. As a church, when they gave their financial reports each quarter, there was probably a very good report. We're doing well. We're rich. They could tell about the many ways that they had prospered. They look around and said, we have need of nothing. You see, their prosperity and their riches had blinded them to their desperate need for Christ. It was interesting, Nathan prayed earlier for Calvary Baptist Church, a local church leader, and he prayed for their pastor. And it was interesting to me that one of the things Nathan prayed was for their pastor, Lord, make him aware of his desperate need. For you. That's a gift of the Lord, isn't it? This was one of the main problems in Laodicea. They had lost sight of their desperate need for Christ. And so when they gathered, Christ wasn't present with them. This wasn't a people, I would say, who were quick to cry out in prayer. Because why would you pray? You pray when you feel need. You don't pray if you don't feel need. They probably weren't a people who were much on witnessing. 
Why? Because their lives were a lot like the lives of the people out there. You're pursuing riches, so are we. They probably weren't a people who, who sought building the kingdom of Christ. Why? Because they were busy building their own kingdoms. And you know what? The same thing can become true of us. Just ask yourself, how much do you feel your own desperate need for Christ? And if you say, how, how do I even measure that? How do I measure how much I feel that I need Christ? Well, maybe one way to answer is, how much do you feel driven to pray? Right. Prayer is something we are about when we feel our need. Prayer is something that's easy to neglect when you don't feel you have need. Sadly, isn't it easy for us many times just to avoid prayer because we feel like there are things out there to do? We've got to get on this. We have our means. We have what we need to do. Prayer can sit back here. Now, sure, every once in a while, something will come along and knock us off our feet health-wise, or we'll lose our job, and then we can be really good at praying then. Only for a recovery of our health, a recovery of our job, to oftentimes lead us right back to the place of thinking, we need nothing. Perhaps we can ask ourselves, how faithful are we in taking the gospel to others? How, how urgently do we feel the need for others, others to, to, to hear the gospel and profess Christ as the Lord? Maybe we don't feel that because we look around and we think they're about the same things that we are. Do you see, riches and other blessings can be a, a temptation for us, for our senses to be dulled so that we no longer feel our desperate need for Christ. You see, the reality is this. As rich as the Laodiceans were, it may be that every one of us in this room is wealthier. Let me note that again. Because you may have had a vision in your mind that I think is accurate. The Laodiceans were filthy rich. And it may be that every one of us in this room is wealthier than they were. We're such an anomaly in the history of the world that, that we've had this much prosperity that what we need to realize as believers is that we are in a dangerous place. We're in a dangerous place because our prosperity can blind us. So what we need to do, just we, we need to be devoted to reading the Word of God. One of the reasons that you read the Word of God is not just so that you can check it off your list, but so that you get an exposure to what is true. The Word of God exposes to you what is true so that if you are becoming dull, if you are beginning to, to, to miss, lose touch with reality, the Word of God reminds you of reality. You need to hear the Word of God preached on Sunday morning. This needs to be a corporate gathering where it's not just the guy who's standing behind the pulpit who's preaching the Word, but we who are actively listening and trying to learn and apply the Word. We need this. You need people in your life. This is one of the reasons we did small groups so that you can have people closely related to you in tight-knit circles who can speak to you what's true when you've lost touch with reality. You see, one of the great warnings we need to hear is that riches in our life and other such blessing can be a hurdle to obedient Christian living. And yet that's not the only warning. There's a second warning I want to give you this morning. There can be a strong temptation when the world offers you much to settle for lesser things. There can be a temptation when the world offers you much to settle for lesser things. There was a joke I remember often being told from the pulpit growing up. That's not quite funny, but it's a good illustra illustration perhaps. The joke is that the poor church in town loved singing when we all get to heaven because they were very much discontent with what they had here on earth while the rich church in town loved to hear and sing the song This is My Father's World because they were very content with what they have here. That's not that funny of a joke which is why none of you are laughing. <laughs> but I think it does serve to show something that's true. When we have many things available to us, when the world offers us much, when we can look at our surroundings and say, man, what I desire is right there, there can be a strong temptation then to settle for lesser things. Now, let me show you why I'm saying this from the text. Jesus has already said to these people, you're blinded. You think you have need nothing, but, but really you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So after telling them they're poor and pitiable, notice what he then says to them in verse 18. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and sh the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now why would Jesus say, you're poor and pitiable, now I'm going to counsel you to do something, buy from me something. How can Jesus say that? You're poor, buy something. Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense unless you understand that what Jesus is offering them cannot be bought with what they have. What Jesus is offering them cannot be bought with money. In fact, I think this may be an allusion to Isaiah 55, the text we open the service with. Listen to the way Isaiah 55 begins. Just, just hear it. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy without money. Buy without price. And then notice what he says in verse 2 of Isaiah 55 after telling them, come and buy. Why? Because what's their problem? Why is he urging them to come and buy milk and, and wine and, and water without money, without price? Why? Because here's their problem. Here's what he asked them. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Do you see what's going on? The reason that those in Isaiah 55 need to hear this plea to come and buy water and buy milk and buy wine and buy bread without money is because they were going after bread that wasn't satisfying. They were going after water that they could buy with money, but it would never satisfy their deep longing for thirst. What Jesus is saying to them, Isaiah 55, is you need to come to me and buy because you're settling for lesser things. You're content with the bread you have and you're sacrificing manna from heaven. You're content with water that quenches your thirst for a little bit instead of water that will cause a spring of life in your soul. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 18. The reason He says, I counsel you to buy something from Me is because each of these things He's going to list, the Laodiceans were tempted to settle for an imitation of that. I mean, note the three things He mentions. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now think of the irony here. Jesus is writing to the church in Laodicea who's rich. They're so rich that their richness has led them to think they don't have need for Jesus. And now Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to tell you, I want you to buy gold from me. Why? So that you can be rich. Why do you say that, Jesus? If their problem is that they're rich, why do you rebuke them harshly and then say, I want you to buy something from me, gold refined by fire, so that you can be rich? Because the reason he can say that, he can say that because he's not talking about the same riches. Do you see? What he's saying is your problem is that you're rich based on this world. You have things that this world says are valuable. I'm telling you, put that aside and seek after true riches. I want you to be rich in my kingdom. I want you to have money that you can put in purses that don't have holes in them. I want you to have treasures that moths can't eat. And he doesn't stop there. Don't, don't only buy from me gold, but, but also white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He says, I know you have this black wool. I know you have this riches that you may have the finest of clothes. And you're content with that. You're spending your life chasing after clothes. Clothes are a priority to you. Isn't that weird? And Jesus says, the problem isn't that I find you too ambitious to have good clothes. It's that I don't find you ambitious enough. You're content with your black wool, nice clothing. I want you to have a white garment that will cover more than your flesh, but a white garment that will cover your shame. Do you see? 
I want you to be clothed with the righteous deeds of the saints, which is what the white garments are as we read later in this book. He ends saying, I want you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You're, you're content boasting in the fact that you can go to the medical school and get this salve that will pull some debris out of your eye and you're fine making your life about chasing treasure and clothes and salve that can remove debris from your eye. But you know what? I want to give you a salve that can make you go from being blind to being able to see. You see what Jesus is saying here is, I don't find you too ambitious. I find you not ambitious enough. You're tempted to settle for lesser things. You don't think you have need because you have riches and, and wool and salve. And what you're doing is you're taking those things and forfeiting true riches and forfeiting true clothing and forfeiting a salve that can open your eyes from being blind so that you can See, they were people who probably could look around and say, we are in a seat of power. Right among the Roman Empire, which is the empire of the world, we're in one of the richest cities. How about our power and how about our prestige? And, and, and this is what we want to chase, becoming well known so that people speak well of us. And Jesus says in verse 21, if you'll conquer that is, if you'll turn from this and begin pursuing obedience to me, do you know what I'm going to grant the one who conquers? The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see that this theme that is trumpeted again and again and again is that you're settling for lesser things. And the same can be true for us. One of the great temptations for us because we live in this world where everything we desire, we can chase after. One of the temptations for us is that we're content to settle for lesser things. You may be content to say, you know what? The Lord's blessed me and I can go get things and I like things and I want to get things. But if you make your life about chasing after things and riches as if they're going to be your satisfaction, you know what you're doing? You're holding on to riches in this life and forfeiting riches in the next. You see, you could look around and say, man, right now it's as if every one of my lusts can be satisfied. I mean, think of it, even just a few years back, if you wanted to inappropriately lust after a woman, you had to risk public shame. A man could at least have to walk outside and look around or perhaps risk the public shame of going down to the video store, right? The convenience store, whatever means you wanted to use. Now you can wake up and reach, your phone, reach out your hand and grab your phone right off your nightstand, right? And there's every lust you want to chase after right at your fingertips. And you know what that is? When we pursue those lusts, we're saying, I want to chase after temporary and passing pleasure rather than knowing the pleasure that is found at the Father's right hand. You see, we live in a time and we live in a place and we live in a country that is blessed in a million ways and we should thank God for every gift we have. And yet we should also acknowledge that we're in a dangerous place. And there can be a strong temptation for any and all of us to settle for the lesser things around us and make our life about those lesser things, chasing prestige and, and recognition, riches and, and things, lusts. And as we chase those, we're forfeiting the eternal and lasting pleasures. So let me give you those two warnings. Riches and other blessings, they can serve to be a hurdle to obedient Christian living. They don't have to be, but they can be that. And the second warning is it's very similar. There can be a strong temptation when the world offers you much to settle for lesser things. But what if this morning you hear that and you say, well, I'm there. That's where I am. I, I've become intoxicated and, and this, this is me. I feel like I have become useless because my life is all about that. Is there any hope for me? Yes. Let me give you a hopeful word. Here it is. 
If we're in a state of apathy and dullness, Jesus loves us too much to leave us there. If we're in a state of apathy and dullness, Jesus loves us too much to leave us there. Now Jesus knows His words are harsh and hard to hear. Jesus doesn't just throw around, you're useless. He knows that's heavy. He's saying that to His people. You're useless. So He knows it's hard. He knows it's a hard word of discipline. That's why I think He follows up all of that by saying in this in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Do you see what, what Jesus is saying to them is, I know this is hard. I know that you feel like I'm, I'm disciplining you with a heavy hand, and I am. But I want you to know why I am. It's because I reprove and I discipline those whom I love. What this means for us this morning is, if this morning the Spirit of God is convicting you, perhaps just breaking into your heart and it's hurting you, because the Spirit of God is saying, that's you, that's where you are, that's what you're doing. You're on the same road as these people who are useless. If the Spirit of God is convicting you and it hurts you, it wounds you, then you know what you can say this morning? God, thank you that Jesus loves me so much. I was tempted at this point to try to think of a way to work in a phrase about discipline in the song, Jesus Loves Me. Because it would be fitting. It would be helpful it would be helpful for us because we typically, when we think about love, we don't think about discipline, do we? I, I've said this before, but if I were to say all of you who had good parents growing up, think of a time in your life when you just knew your dad loved you. It probably wasn't when he was taking his belt off, was it? Oh, man, you know, none of us walk by, you know, the funeral home and, and walk by and my dad's there, his body in the casket, and I say to him, man, he was a great father. Let me tell you about the times he spanked me. Because, man, I know he loves me. We don't do that because it does feel foreign. Why? Because the text says discipline in the moment is not pleasant, is it? When we think of love, we like to think of pleasant things. But discipline is loving, isn't it? And it's good for us to train our minds that way because you know every time the Lord disciplines you, you know what He's saying? I love you too much to leave you there. I love you too much to let you be satisfied with temporary and passing pleasures. I want you to have eternal pleasure. I love you too much to let you fill your life with temporary riches. I want you to have eternal riches. That's what He's saying to the Laodiceans. I love you too much to let you remain useless running toward hell. That's why I'm giving you these harsh words. Therefore, seeing my love for you, seeing that I'm disciplining you, be zealous and turn and repent and know that when you repent, you're running toward one who loves you. This morning, if you're convicted of your sin, repent of it, as Jesus says in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. And you can repent with joy. Why? Because when you turn from your sin and you turn towards Jesus Christ, you're running toward one who loves you. If He didn't love you, He would leave you exactly where you are. If He didn't love you, He would be content never to bring conviction in your life. But because He loves us, He reproves us, and He disciplines us. Let that be a word of encouragement to you. And then just a final word about what should be our goal. Finally, let me end with this exhortation. Walk in close fellowship with our Lord. Let me urge you to walk in close fellowship with our Lord. If you're asking the question, okay, I've received these warnings. If I've been convicted, I'm repenting and I'm turning. Then I'm turning away from sin. What am I turning to? What, what, what should I be about now? What should be my focus and my goal? What do I do I think the answer is, we seek to walk in close fellowship with our Lord. Now, the reason I say that is because I think that's what verse 20 says. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
Now, again, not, not to reprove those who brought me up in the faith, because I keep saying I was taught this growing up and it's wrong, but one more time. I was taught this growing up, that verse 20 was a text used in evangelism, right? That this is Jesus' way of speaking to the unbeliever. And what he's saying is, right now I'm on the outside of your heart, and I'm not your Savior or your Lord, and you have a little throne inside your heart. And what I'm doing is I'm knocking at the door of your heart. I won't barge my way in, but I'm knocking at the door of your heart. And if you'll open that door of your heart, then I'll come in and I'll be your Savior. And that's, we're supposed to use this first thing. So that's what Jesus is doing. We evangelize. He's knocking at the door of your heart. Open and let him in your heart. I don't think, though, that this is a verse directed toward the unbeliever. And the reason why is because it's found right here in the letter Jesus is writing to his church. You see, Jesus is saying to the church, to the, to the Laodiceans, to those who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and make up the church in Laodicea, he says to them, I stand at the door and knock. That's his way of saying, you, you, because you've made yourself so utterly useless, I am on the outside here. I'm not in your midst. When you gather and worship the Lord corporately, you're not fellowshipping with me. And I think what he's saying to them is, I want you to walk in close fellowship with me. I don't want to be someone that you see as useless, but I want you to understand that I am your Lord and I, I, I reprove you and I discipline and I long to walk in close fellowship with you. Now, the reason I use the word fellowship with you here is because I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and him with me and he with me. You see, this imagery of eating together is an image of, of close fellowship. Fellowship, it means more than eating together. Doesn't it? I think the idea of fellowship is, a, is somewhat of a partnership. And among believers or believers with our Lord, it's an affectionate partnership, isn't it? So when we say we walk in fellowship together as a church, we say that we walk in partnership together. We're about the same task and we have strong affection for one another. But there's a reason why we refer, if you look at your Sunday night schedule card tonight, on the card, what it'll say for evening service is fellowship-picnic at Conger Park. Now, fellowship is more than eating together, but it is not less. And in our world and in the ancient world, one thing we had in common is that when you invite someone into your home and you share a meal together, it is an act of affectionate hospitality. That's what it is. So when Jesus is using this, I'm going to come in and I'll eat with you, it's not because Jesus, you know, he talks about eating a lot, doesn't he? It's not that he's just saying, you know, one of the great things that we need as Christians is that we just need to be really hungry and always eating. No, it's because this carries this idea of, of affection, of, of, of closeness, of fellowship, right? What Jesus is saying is, I'm on the outside of the church at this point. This, that's a frightening thing for a church to hear. I'm not with you. You've become useless. But I want to come in and dine with you. I want to eat with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to walk in closeness with you. Indeed, what Jesus is saying here, and it's a very gracious loving picture is that I'm willing to come and walk with you. I'm willing to come and fellowship with you. I'm willing to come and dine with you. I think what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to be a people who focus on walking in close fellowship with me. Make your lives about me. Obeying me. Walking with me. Walking in the Spirit. Now what's interesting is Jesus uses an image that he also uses at the second coming. In, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is using a, a parable saying, you need to be ready for when I return. But here's what he says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he'll come and serve them. 
What Jesus is saying is, I want you to be ready because when I come back, I want you to be like servants who are waiting for the master to return so that when he knocks, you're ready to open the door and then I'm going to come in and you're going to sit down to eat and I'm going to serve you. Close fellowship, isn't it? Why is it then, if Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, I want close fellowship with you right now, why is he using the imagery, the same imagery that he uses for, be ready for when I come on the last day? Is he saying to the Laodiceans, I want fellowship with you now? Or is he saying, be ready for when the second coming happens? Well, I think the reality is, each of these entails the other. That is, to, if you ask this, how is it that I can know I'll be ready on that last day? Pursue the Lord now. Right? And if you're pursuing the Lord now, you'll be ready on that last day. But you don't have to sit and worry. Am I supposed to look out the window all the time at the clouds and see if any of them are being rolled back like a scroll? Right? That's not what Jesus wants you to do, to be ready. He wants you to be pursuing Him now. Make your life about Him now. Pursue Him in love now. Seek to walk in close fellowship and obedience to the Lord now. And if that's your goal and if that's your pursuit, you will be ready when your Master returns. So this morning, you've heard a couple of warnings. Indeed, there are temptations all around us. You've heard a word of hopeful encouragement that the Lord's reproving you and He's disciplining you because He loves you. He wants you to turn. And why is repenting good news? Because when you turn, you're turning to one who loved you enough that when you were His enemy, He died to pay for your sins and then rose from the dead on the third day so that He could justify you, declare you righteous. If you're Repenting this morning, you're turning to that one who loved you when you were his enemy. How much more does he love you now? He's made you his own. And then finally, just a word of exhortation. Walk in close fellowship with him. One of the ways that we show we're walking in close fellowship with the Lord is by coming to this table. Every Sunday morning, we, we end the service remembering and proclaiming Christ's death as our hope. It's our way of saying, this is our hope. This is our pursuit. This is what our life's about. Hopefully, as we keep our focus as a congregation on the gospel and on its priority and the priority of exalting Jesus and following Him as our Lord, it will keep us from going down the path of uselessness, as those in Laodicea did. So this morning... If you're a believer, you're in good standing with an evangelical church, would you join us as we, as we distribute the bread, we distribute the cup, and we proclaim the Lord's death as our hope? If you're not a believer this morning, I would ask that you not take of this meal. Because when we take of this meal, what we're saying is that my faith is in Jesus Christ. I've repented of my sin and trusted in Him. If you've not done that, don't take. But if you've not done that, I want to plead with you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and who died to pay for our sins and who was raised on the third day. If you do not repent of your sins and place your faith in Him, then when He comes back, even as He comes to dine with those who are His, those who are not His, He will take them and throw them into a lake of fire called hell forever. But if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. If you're not a believer, please repent and believe in Him today. If you want to talk to me or, or anyone else after the service, we'd love to talk to you. If you are a believer... Let's take a moment of silence. In this time of silence, you can respond to the Word as you see fit. Maybe you just want to stop and, and pray before the Lord. During this time of silence, the ushers will come forward, the musicians will get in place, and then after a bit of a time, silent response before the Lord, we'll come to the table singing about the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment of silence now as we come to the table.